Well, may God reveal his glory through the preaching of his word. What a great song and what a great prayer. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. A little bit deeper in your Bible. You may need to use your index. We're going to work our way through this chapter paragraph by paragraph, but before we start, some, some comments. Recently took a trip back to my parents' house. I'm 37 years old. It's time to do something with the boxes of baseball cards from the 80s. As an 80s kid, I grew up hearing the stories about the really rare and valuable baseball cards that this or that dad had. And um, so I gathered them myself, and so did my friends. Thing is, every other 80s kid was doing the same thing, so there's no such thing as a rare card. So what was I to do with this box containing boxes of baseball and basketball cards? Well, I did some Googling to see if there was anything in there and let most of them go. They weren't worth the time to sort through, and they weren't worth the space to take, to take up. Well, in the Bible, every chapter is valuable because it's God's word. But then there are some really valuable chapters because they make sense of so many other chapters. They interpret so much of the rest of the Bible. And at times, it's hard to tell when you've happened upon one. Well, this afternoon, we come to an unsuspecting chapter. There are a few reasons for that. It's especially deep in our Bibles. If you start a Bible reading plan, you'll come to this after a good while. And you may be tired by the time you get there. It's also surrounded by so many other memorable and well-known stories and accounts. And my own story with this chapter is of hearing it referenced over and over again and turn to 2 Samuel 7 or in 2 Samuel 7 this, like, I need to figure that chapter out. Turns out the rest of the Bible's story, the Bible story to this point funnels right through 2 Samuel 7. So we come to an unsuspecting chapter and I'd say to the great Bambino, the Colossus of Clout, the Sultan of Swat, the Babe. It's a Sandlot reference. This is the Babe Ruth card of chapters in the Bible. And thankfully, in the case of the scriptures, and with this chapter in particular, it is both valuable and it's for everyone. So everyone can have it. Shifting illustrations... Briefly, climbing through the Bible is like climbing through mountains. In 2 Samuel 7, we reach one of the highest points in the Old Testament. Sometimes if you imagine going on a hike up a mountain, you'd reach the top. And maybe you wouldn't know how high you are because of the fog around the peak. But if you hang out long enough and the fog clears and you can tell where you're at. Well, that's what we'll do in this session. We'll hang out at the peak a bit of this chapter, and over time, as we soak in it across the hour, I pray that we will be able to see just how high we are and just how far we can see. Abraham, God's plan focused in a family. God's covenant with Israel through Moses. At Sinai, his plan focused in a nation. Now, God's plan focused in a man, a king, over that nation. It's the reason why the psalmists bank their hope in David over and again. It's one reason Jesus called himself 
the Son of God. It goes back to this chapter. The reason why Matthew opens his gospel account, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's the reason the apostles kept talking about David, David, David in Acts when they preached about Christ. The reason why Paul opens his letter to the Romans, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's the reason why we say that Jesus is exalted to the Father's right hand and that Paul says God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. All of this goes back to and through 2 Samuel 7. It's the reason why in the book of Revelation, Jesus is on a throne. All the other high points lead to this high point so far. From here you can see all the way back and you can see all the way forward. So let's start by looking down at the text as we have David's blueprints, God's blueprints, David's revised blueprints. It's our outline. 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 3. David's blueprints. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Well, recently we've had a bad DVI cord for our Apple TV to the, to the TV. The family will be sitting around watching planet Earth just as some lion's about to tackle a giraffe. And then it goes black. And it comes back on. And you've got a frog in the Amazon. You know, we missed it. <laughs> so, and the entertainment for me is the protest. I mean, it's a thing now. Uh, we kind of allow it. I understand. Well, what happened? What happened? What happened between Moses... And this scene here, Moses who died outside the land, and this scene where there's a king on a throne, Israel has a king. The king has a house in Jerusalem, and he has a people who are experiencing rest from all their enemies. It's as if the war between the offspring of the serpent and the woman is, is over. The Lord is with his king, and so he's with his people, and they're in the land, and they're flourishing, and God is blessing. How did we get here? What happened? Let's answer that question before we go any further in 2 Samuel 7. It'll take a bit. When First and 2 Samuel open up, things are upside down. The lens of the camera in this story is trained on the priesthood. You'll remember that the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, was established in order to mediate the presence of God through uh, orders and the sacrificial system involved the offering of animals for sacrifice, etc. Eli and his sons at this time are in charge. The priest Eli doesn't even recognize the voice of God and his sons are wicked. They don't know the Lord, the text tells us. That kind of confirms what we might think if we found them having sex with women outside the temple, which they were. It's Genesis 3 all over again. We've been here before in the story, have we not? That's Israel's priests. But in the same opening sequence, you have a lowly Israelite woman named Hannah. She's weeping. 
And she's praying. And right away we can see that Israel's leaders don't know the Lord, but a lowly Israelite woman prays to him. And for what does she pray? She prays for a child, for she's barren. And Hannah's barrenness is a picture in miniature of the barrenness of the nation. After Moses died, Joshua led the people into the land with great success, and that land lasted a while until everyone started doing what was right in their own eyes. Judges tells us, the period of Judges showed us how it goes when we rule ourselves. Sin pervades humanity, and it will pervade human leadership. Trouble at the top trickles down. And there are women like Hannah, but the people reflect the spiritual barrenness of their leaders, and it's always that way in Israel. So after the period of the judges, the people know they need a king, and they do. It's actually part of God's plan. He promised kings, as we've heard, through, through Abraham. And we have a job description for the king in, in Moses' writings in Deuteronomy. He's to write the law down and keep it and obey it. He's to trust in the Lord and not horses. He's to obey the Lord. They want a king like the nations, though the nation does. Tall and handsome with all the trappings of human strength. Never mind that the nations will take, the leaders of the nations take, take, and take. But they will get what they want, and so they get Saul, their king. And Saul takes, takes, and he takes, we're told. And it isn't that way, isn't it that way, when we get what we want so often. Whatever we pursue is our king, whoever we seek to obey. Anyone outside the Lord will take from us, take from us, and take from us. Think of those little uh, internet things that'll fly across your screen. Um, so somebody who's been on meth for so many years and somebody, and, and a picture before. And what it does, and it's a picture of, of addiction is a good picture of how sin works even. The way that sin manifests itself physically in the body and take you down. Well, all of sin has a soul deteriorating effect. And Israel's in bad shape. Well, thankfully, the Lord is committed to his plans and his promises. Hannah's womb would not stay barren. She'll conceive a child, and by that child, God is conceiving within her life for Israel. When Samuel, her son, is born, she prays a prayer. Now, what kind of prayer would most women pray at the birth of their child? A prayer of thanks and praise, maybe? A prayer of desperation and a cry for help from exhaustion and being overwhelmed? Certainly. I know a couple who had a baby and only a number of months in, they were sure the baby was a genius. Maybe somebody thanked God for their genius baby at a few months old. They're reading the wrong website. But there's a way to be thankful for your child and there's a way to not see things straight. What did Hannah pray? Only the most outlandish prayer. She believed her son was a part of God's plan to turn the world upside down. Or better, to turn the world aright. So here's a prayer. My heart exalts in the Lord, and my horn exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, and she who has many children is forlorn. 
The Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts up the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Reversals, reversals, reversals. What a prayer to pray at the birth of your baby. But God is going to set everything right and it's going to involve the proud being brought low and the humble being exalted and her child is going to have something to do with this. The word of the Lord was rare in those days, but Samuel, her son, would hear the Lord speak to him. The people wanted a king like the nations, but the Lord would appoint his own king. And this is captured well in the familiar story of David and Goliath. Shortly after, the spirit leaves Saul and enters David. Or right to contrast David and Goliath in that familiar story. Goliath was tall and well-armed and a veteran of war. David was small, virtually unarmed, and had been running sandwiches to the battlefield for his brother. That's the scene. But there's a deeper contrast going on in the story of David and Goliath, and that is the story of Saul and David. Saul was tall and handsome and well-armed and afraid of the enemies of God. But David was short, a scrap, couldn't fit into Saul's armor, had hardly a weapon, and was afraid of no enemy of God, for he entrusted himself to the Lord. The contrast would continue after this episode with Saul seeking David's life and David on the run. Well, by 2 Samuel 7, David is king, he's victorious, he's on his throne, the Ark of the Covenant is back in the land, and under him the people are at rest, and Saul is out of the picture. It's not what they wanted in their sin, but praise God, he keeps his promises and gives them what they need. God is not bound by our sinful desires. He appointed his own king. And so in 2 Samuel 7, we read this as we've read. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, David speaks. Things are good. And David is in the mood now to do something good. So back to this thing of David's blueprints. He says, the king had said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. You know, David knew it. He had upgrade after upgrade to his place. He used to be a shepherd, and he lived under the sun and the moon. He was outdoors with the sheep. Well, what about God? I mean, David's in a palace now. What about God? He's in a tent. Well, this should not be. Let's make a house for the Lord. And finally, right? God's people weren't mobile anymore, and if camping isn't for anyone, it sure ain't for the Lord. Nathan says, great idea, and the Lord is with you. Do what's in your heart. Well, God wastes no time in getting David a reply. And what is that response? Surely one of appreciation, right? One of uh, like an attaboy. Or a finally, thank you. I'll take a bigger house. How about, instead, an interrogation? Verse 5. Go and tell my servant David this, Nathan. 
Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people from Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent from my dwelling in all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? The tabernacle was established as a meeting place between man and God. So in Eden, man and God were together without any trouble. Outside of Eden, God has constructed a way for man to meet with him. There's a whole sacrificial system, a day of atonement, and a killing of animals to deal with sin that would allow man, in a very limited way if we look at it, to meet with God. And this all took place in the tabernacle, this traveling tent we're reading about. And David says, let's do the house thing. And God says, you make a house for me? David, please, who do you think you are? And who do you think that I am? Yes, you're my servant, but not because I need you. Let me explain to you how this thing works. Verse 8. I took you from the pasture, from following sheep, that you would be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies before you. I was in Taekwondo growing up, and I advanced to black belt. I remember feeling proud of myself, and it's good for a young man to hang his hat on something and to feel proud for an achievement and in a moment like that. Now imagine me saying to my dad, Dad, I appreciate what you do for our family, how you support us and all. Now I've got my black belt on. Keep up the good work, and while you're at it, here's a dollar. Go get yourself some ice cream, and if you need any advice on how to take care of the family, I'm always here. There's a kind of unintended condescension that comes from totally misreading the relationship and what's actually going on. And my dad ought to say, son, you have a black belt and I'm proud of you. But remember, I took you and signed you up for classes, by the way, after you were beat up too many times at the bus stop. I paid for your classes, and your mother drove you to classes, and we fed you before and after. Son, Taekwondo was a part of my blueprint for making you a man. I love you, but I don't need you to help me out. And he'd be right. It may not be an outright rebuke, but it's a reorientation. And David needed just that. So David had some blueprints in mind for God. But God just showed him his blueprints. David, you may draft plans for where I'll live, but I am the one who put you in my plans. David's desire to do something great is not entirely wrong here. It's that David forgot how great God was, how great a giver he is, how great his grace is, how great he is in himself to do all that he did for David. David forgot that he's nothing and God is everything. David forgot that God's plan of salvation begins and ends with the Lord. Can't we do that ourselves? Well, what will the Lord do now? Let's consider some options. Uh, He can take it all away from David for his presumption. He could halt his generosity. Or I suppose he could do even more for David. What will the Lord do? Verse 9. And... I will make for you a great name, like the name of the ones of the earth. 
And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies. David, Lord shows David the rest of the blueprints that he has in mind. There's more yet. Now about that house, verse 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord will make you a house. Make you a house. When your days are fulfilled, you will lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not, will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So what would God do for David? David wants to build God a house, and he says, look at all the stuff I've done for you, and I got more. I'm going to give you a great name, rest in the land, descendants a kingdom. And David and his sons would be a son to God, and he'd be a father to David. And he would build for David a house, that is, a lineage. What can stop God from doing this? Nothing. Not sin. Saul's sin forfeited his kingdom. David and Solomon to follow will be disciplined, but their sin will not nullify the promise. Not sin and not the clock. The most glorious of this world's kingdoms fade. The best of this world's leaders die and their kingdoms fade. But this one will be forever, forever, forever. Do you see now how God funnels all of his promises through David in this chapter. The fog clears and we begin to see that we are indeed at the top of a very high peak in the Bible story. All these promises, this is not what David expected to hear. David's response, what must it be? Mind blown. Mind blown. He will need to revise his blueprints Someone will build a house for the Lord, yes, but he gets it now. God came to David with questions. Now David comes humbly to God with questions. 2 Samuel 7, verse 18. Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Who does David think he is? Well, he's asking that question now, and that's a good thing. Who does he think God is? Now he remembers. God is the one who has done it all. Verse 19. And yet this was a very small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. He prays with words, and yet... With words, he says he's speechless, and he's speechless because he knows what God has just said. He knows better than we might hear on first reading what God has just said. And he captures it in a simple phrase. This is instruction for mankind. That's what David, God, that David heard God say. He didn't hear a promise for him merely. 
He didn't even hear a promise for the nation merely under his rule at the time. He heard a promise for mankind, instruction for mankind, a roadmap for humanity and history to come. God's plan for the world right there on God's lips. All of God's promises will run through him. And why should David hear that? Like maybe it's his pride that he would overread into something that God has said to him for the nation? Not at all. He's merely reading scripture. He knows where the story goes when he has his head on right. And he's hearing this just right. More on that in a bit. God reminded David who he was. And now David praises God who makes these promises. God humbles us with his greatness, but he also does he not humble us with his grace. And that's better. God's grace even leverages the greatness of God for our good in his promises. How good is it when God's greatness is leveraged for our good in grace? Hear his praise in verse 21. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant to know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears. David wanted to do what was in his heart. Instead, God will do everything that is in his heart. David had a big heart for God, but God has a bigger heart for him. Indeed, a bigger heart for the whole world. No God besides you, he says. Just like Hannah prayed, he gets it. God reminded David of his promises, and now David rehearses how God has kept his promises. He, remi- he, he remembers how God has kept his promises to his people before, in verse 23. And who is like your people Israel, one, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them very great and awesome things by driving out before your people? whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, the nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. Grace comes, and he knows it, and grace has come, and he rehearses it. God has reminded him of his grace, and David recounts the grace of God. And so we must recount the grace of God. Keep it on your lips. Keep it on our lips. We forget it. Dave was on the verge of forgetting it. He hasn't forgotten it. He praises God. And now, on the basis of God's promise, he prays a prayer. He prays a prayer for God to fulfill his promise. Lord, do what you said you'd do. Verse 25. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever what the word you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true. And you've promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. 
He gets where salvation starts and ends. God's greatness puts us in our place. And his grace, his great grace, gives us courage to pray. God, do what you said. Now let's lay this piece, as we've been looking down at the passage, let's look back. And let's lay this piece next to what's come before. We'll actually start in creation and then work our way way up. How does God's covenant with David fit with the covenant as we've described with creation? Well, Adam was God's image. Called in scripture, he was a son of God. When we hear son in our context, we tend to think about bloodline. Sonship carries in scripture and in the ancient world also a strong sense of representation. One like me, one with me, an extension of me. A son, more the image of his father, represented his father, was like his father and belonged to his father. And when God says, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son, he's saying that this future son of David will be the new true human. Israel, as we heard in the last talk, was also called the son of God. And the Lord said to Moses, Exodus 4, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles I've put you put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. As God's son, Israel was to be a true humanity. Adam's race as it should be. In Israel, the creation of the office of prophet, priest, and king actually are institutional expressions of the role of Adam and humanity in in the world in relation to God. And David takes on those roles. Once you see it, sonship is all over the Bible. The king is the son. And it's on Jesus' lips to mean more than his divinity, but also his human Davidic royalty. More about that in the next talk. Well, how does God's covenant with David fit with God's covenant with Abraham? How does it relate there? So lay those pieces next to each other. Well, this promise will bring about the realization of the Abrahamic promises. At the end of Genesis, we're told, Jacob called his sons and said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what is going to happen to you in the days to come. And here's what he said to the tribe of Judah. For the tribe of Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. God promised to make Abraham's name great, a great name for him, and kings would come from him, and now here is a king, and God will give him a great name. God promised to make Abraham's name great, give him a land and a people, and David inherits it all and extends that all. How does God's covenant with David fit with God's covenant with Israel through Moses before him? That's right, we're in the last talk. Well, David's the king about whom Moses spoke in Deuteronomy 17, who would write and keep the law. David is the one who will lead the nation. David is the one the nation needs. They were doing what was right in their own eyes, for they had no king. We've looked down, we've looked back a bit. Now let's look forward. How does all this look forward to Christ? What does this Davidic covenant contribute to the whole story of Scripture? If all of Scripture is written for our endurance and encouragement and hope, how does God's promise to David do that for you and me? How does it give hope to you and me? 
It's not hard to see, and it wasn't for David's son, Solomon, to see. So turn with me to Psalm chapter 71, 72, excuse me. Psalm chapter 72. Every people has a leader, whether a president or a king, and every leader has his promises, and every people their expectations. And the world cries out for a leader, a king, but of the kind only the Lord can provide. And here's a portrait of a king for God's people. The promises are big and the expectations are high. What Solomon expected, you and I and Christ have received. The world asks, where can we get a righteous king? Psalm 72. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills and righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor and of the people and give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Solomon here, reflecting on God's promise to David, his father, considers that a future son and king would be truly righteous. And that righteous rule would mean a righteous that righteous, uh, that righteous king would mean a righteous rule for the people. Now David, David, was a very great king. And we should think much of him and look to his example, but not in every respect. David, only chapters after this, chapter we're in today, seeks out a woman. Many great victories Many great victories. It looks like everything is going well. He may even be the one. And then he stays home from battle when he should be out with his men. And he calls Bathsheba to himself, commits adultery with her. And when she's pregnant to cover up the thing, he kills Uriah on the battlefield. Now David, unlike Saul, when confronted, will repent. Beautifully even, Psalm 51 is a place where we find that confession and repentance. But David's reign won't be the same. It's a slow decline. David will end up on the run. He'll end up back in Jerusalem after being chased by his son, and he'll die cold and surrounded by concubines. It's not the picture of the Davidic king, the righteous king to come. But Solomon, Solomon fully expects a future righteous king. And what's interesting is that regardless of the incredible disobedience of kings to come, the promise actually, it sticks. When Solomon follows other gods and his heart had turned away from the Lord, Scripture says, the Lord promised to tear the kingdom from him, but not without this qualification. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. I will give one tribe to his son so that David, my servant, may always be a lamp before me in Jerusalem. In the city where I chose to put my name. Likewise, when Abijah reigned over Judah and had committed all the sins his father had done before him because his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his forefather had been, then for David's sake, it says, when this king is wicked, for David's sake, David who's dead but who has the promises, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by raising up a son to succeed him. The point is, is that as the story goes on, this promise to David... This promise to David, this indestructible promise, this promise that God will put a 
son of David on the throne to rule righteously sticks. Where can we get a righteous king? It's going to come from David. The world cries out, where can we get a king who will rule forever? Man, if you can get a good king, keep him. Even the world's best kings fail or they, they die, die. Well, this one will last, verse 5. May they fear you while the sun endures as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. That's a long time. It wasn't clear at the time David received this as to whether he would have a succession of sons to sit on his throne or whether there would one day be a son who would live eternally to sit on his throne and rule righteously. But it got clearer. You might recognize this promise from Isaiah. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. My friends, Mighty God was not a popular baby name at the time. None of these were popular baby names, and may they never be popular baby names. Prince of Peace. Isaiah expected that David's future son would be an eternal son. The world cries out as well for a king. Where can we get a king who will rule it all, who's righteous, whose reign lasts forever, and whose reign stretches in every direction? Verse 8, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and the enemies lick the dust. May the king of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. God's covenant for David was truly a charter for humanity, God's plan for the world. And the nations rage, but the sun will reign. Well, where can we get a king who will rule in compassion? It's the last question. Who will reverse what's upside down in this world? Verse 12, Solomon expecting the son of David. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. And we saw this, just flickers of this, beautiful flickers of this in David as he ruled for a time with justice and with compassion. And the son of David to come will be righteous. His rule will last forever. It'll stretch from in every direction in, in, to every extent over the whole universe. And he will have a reign of great compassion. It'll be an incredible reign, but it won't be a reign that doesn't tend to the needs of his people and has compassion on them and reverses their troubles. Here, now a universal blessing in verse 15. Long may he live. May the gold of Sheba be given to him. My prayer be made for him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains, may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. And may his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be the, his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. In other words, as Jesus, Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Friends, where do such high expectations as we find in Psalm 72 for a king come from? Is it just nice, happy, optimistic, but cheap talk? No, it's not. These expectations come from God's sure promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God will utterly reverse the tragic situation, not just of Israel, but through her king for the world and for all those who trust in this son and kiss the son. Now, taking after David, let's pray a prayer for God to do exactly as he's promised. Let's pray. Father in heaven, great Father in heaven, you alone are God. You alone do wondrous things. You have promised a son for David's throne and you have promised a son to rule the world in righteousness from sea to sea and without end and with great compassion. And on the cross we have our king, our king who is David's great son, who is the eternal son of God incarnate. On the cross he lays his life down for his sheep and on the cross he obeys the father fully. And on the cross he secures the salvation and the safety of his people. And through his resurrection he declares what he's declared with power the son of God. And through his resurrection, he's the firstborn of a new creation, and he will bring us home. Father, complete in us what you have started. You have raised us from the dead spiritually. Raise us from the dead. Bring back your son as you have promised. May we see him face to face, and may we be transformed into his likeness, even as he has taken on our likeness. And may we be with him forever, and may we shine like the sun. We thank you for such a king with such a great provision. It's in his name we pray, amen.